It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. This is our Highlights podcast. If you missed today's show, uh, two interviews in particular really stood out. We had quite a conversation with City Councilor Ray Jones about Uber and whether Uber's price surging needs to be banned or regulated. And then we talked to Dr. Yanni Friedhoff about that show, The Biggest Loser, that made its debut uh, on TV again uh, last night. It's, uh, what, season 17 debut. Talked about how that show is actually really, really bad particularly for the people who compete on it. You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge weekdays, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. Roger Kincaid, Rob Breckenridge. This is your place for opinion and talk in Calgary. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. Uh, that's Rob, Rob Breckenridge, by the way, and I don't mind saying uh, to your face, sir, one of the worst business ideas I've ever heard of you've uh, detailed in the uh, Calgary Herald today in your what? column. It's perfect. I mean, it's virtually zero cost, and uh, the markup's tremendous. It's, uh, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> should, we, should we spoil it for people who haven't <laughs> read your column yet? Rob has this idea about starting a business, packing jars full of snow and selling them for $100 each. And I I, I, I want to say the law of supply and demand is not on your side, sir. Snow is in abundant supply right now. I guess the point is, and the point I was trying to make, is that that would seem an outrageous price. Why would anyone pay $100 for a jar of snow when you could get that snow for free on your own front lawn or uh, on any piece of property really in, in the city of Calgary right now. And and why you know, how on earth do you come up with a hundred dollars as a valuation for, for snow anyway? Certainly not worth that much money. I guess the point is that even if that's an outrageous price to pay for what's essentially water, if you don't like the price, don't buy it. All right. And the you know, uh funny enough, the answer to your question, who would pay a hundred dollars for snow, the answer is somebody who feels that a jar of snow is worth a hundred dollars to them at that particular time. Well, it might be. Let's right? say it's uh, it's the dead of summer, and you've got uh, some of your jars of snow in your freezer. There's a Hollywood movie in town. All of a sudden, oh, my God, we, we have that one scene. we got to reshoot, but there's no snow. It's July. Where are we going to get snow? <laughs> well, all of a sudden now, $100 for those jars of snow. You might have someone willing to pay. All right, let's let's revisit this uh, after our conversation with uh, Councillor Ray Jones, uh, Councillor for Ward Five. Uh, Councillor joins us on, excuse me, joins us on the radio now. Uh, Councillor, welcome to the program. Thank you. So you, you had uh, just a line in the uh, in a Herald article today uh, with reference to this uh, $1,100 tab that was incurred by an Uber passenger in Edmonton on New Year's Eve, suggesting that maybe the price for Uber should be regulated. Is, is that how you feel about the Calgary bylaw? Well, I feel in the Calgary bylaw, if it's not regulated, people must, must know what they're paying prior to getting into that cab. I mean, that gentleman must have been in shock when he found out his cab fare was $1,100. What do you mean they must know what they're going to pay? I mean, obviously, when I get in a taxi, I, I know what the rate is. I don't know exactly what my fare is going to be when I get to where I'm going. Well, I can tell you a fare for me from my house to downtown is ball- ballpark about $22. Okay, but if you're going from your house to somewhere where you haven't been, you've got a general idea of how far you're going. Well, but you don't know the, what the exact fare is going to be, right? You know what the rate is. You have an idea of how far you're going, right? Well, the airport to Woodbine, which is about as far as you can go, is about 75 bucks. Okay. Okay, but hang on. It's, it's about $75. You, if you're taking the bus from the airport to Woodbine, it's about 
it's it's not about anything. It's precisely the cost of the fare. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think the situation in Edmonton and, and what had happened was New Year's Eve. Uber has a surge pricing algorithm built into its uh, its system to get more drivers on the road in response to demand. The surge pricing was 8.9 times the regular rate, something that this guy had to agree to uh, multiple times before accepting that ride, what ended up being a very, very long ride. I'm not I'm not sure what the issue is here, though, because he knew what the rate was. He knew where he was uh, was going was going to be a very lengthy ride. I mean, he, here's someone who had used Uber for shorter trips in Edmonton, had a ballpark idea of, OK, 20 bucks will get me that far. Taking this long that, circular are saying, route. Are you saying then that a thousand or eleven hundred dollars for a cab fare anywhere in Edmonton is not gouging? How do we define gouging? I wouldn't pay that. I wouldn't pay it either. Okay, so what's the I mean, problem? I could fly just I fly anywhere in Canada for that price. For what price? For eleven hundred bucks. Would you pay eleven hundred dollars to fly to Vancouver? I paid six hundred to fly to Vancouver. Would you pay four hundred to fly to Vancouver? Yes. Why would you pay six hundred then? Because I paid six. But why would you pay six if you could pay four? That's what the rate was, but I knew what the rate was going in. Well, the, as did this driver, and, and that's the point of it all: is that the set, the prices for the product is set when the product is is consumed, not arbitrarily by a city councilor. Why is that unfair that the price is set at the time that the product is to be consumed? I don't think it's unfair that it's set as long as he knew. Which he did. Because well, he, did he though? Or is the argument then that uh, that an inebriated person should not be allowed to use Uber because they can't make uh, a cognitive uh, a responsible choice? Nobody should have known what the price of that cab was worth. Which he exactly did. what that price of that cab was worth. I'm sure that if he was told that it was eleven hundred dollars, he wouldn't have taken it. But he had to. He had to agree to the price to take it. He may have agreed to it. But it might have been all he might have agreed to was surge pricing. Otherwise, the guy says we have surge pricing in fact, which is eight times. Yeah, eight point nine. Not telling the amount though. Okay, so what's your issue here then? That um, that they shouldn't be My allowed to have surge the pricing. Price gouging. Well, no, but how? At what point does it become price gouging? Where's the threshold? Because now you're talking about enshrining this in a bylaw. How would we word that? How would we do that? All I'm saying is it should be fair and equitable to everybody. But how is it not? $1,100 is not fair no, and equitable. That's, that's avoiding the question. Uber has a surge pricing mechanism, right? And according to Uber, the vast majority of their trips on, on New Year's Eve were under three times the rate. In fact, most were at the normal rate because that's when people were choosing to get rides. So what's at what point does it become gouging? At four times, five times the rate, six times the rate? Is that a question? Yes. At what point does it become gouging? Uber has its base rate. Surge pricing kicks in, depending on demand. Well, I'm not a big fan of Uber to begin with. I know, but you're talking about something specific, that we need to ban something. And I'm asking you what point it becomes gouging, because you use that word, gouging something illegal in Canada. At what point does it become gouging? When it becomes four or five times the rate of what a normal tech cab is. Okay. So four times the rate of what a normal... Sorry, what a normal cab is or what the normal Uber rate is? Well, I'm not an Uber fan, so... Well, no, but that's a, that's an important question. Uh, should Uber's prices be set, be capped at four to five times what a taxi would charge or what Uber, Uber would set, normally charge? In my mind, charge? it should be set at exactly what a cab is. Well, we don't know exactly what a cab is. Well, we do. It's set no, number don't. of dollars per kilometer. We know what the tariff is, but we don't know what the cost of a trip will be. And that's a problem for a lot of consumers, especially given the fact that uh, they can't always secure a taxi ride to an area. Well, you know, I, I, I've never had a problem getting a cab. 
whether it's New Year's Eve or whether it's Christmas Eve or whether it's Stampede Week. Okay, well, I have. So who wins in this conversation? Okay, well, all right. Well, let's even let's even take that. Uh, let's even give you the benefit of the doubt on that point. That on New Year's Eve, it's not difficult, relatively speaking, to get a cab in, in Calgary. Even if we accept that as true, what's the problem then? That if someone has the option, well, I can get this cab uh, for let's say seventy-five bucks, as you say, or I get this Uber ride that uh, because of their surge pricing is going to cost me hundreds of dollars. What's what's the problem? The 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 consumer can choose the cab, right? That's true. So why, where's there a problem to be solved? It's like I said, as long as he knows exactly what the fare is. I th- okay, let me let me come at the question from a different angle then. Because it, it, it seems to me, Counselor, that, that your primary uh, uh, initiative here is to protect the consumer, right? That's exactly what it is. Okay. What could provide better protection for consumers than a, uh, than a competitive marketplace, than a more competitive marketplace? I wouldn't call it competitive. It, that's precisely what the price uh, uh, adjustment is. It, it's to uh, in, incentivize Uber drivers to get out on the road and start working more and, and get out there and provide more supply because the demand is high. So if you throttle that, then what does that do to the overall transportation picture? Well, we lived this long without Uber. Yeah, and we've been complaining about it for years, and, and the city doesn't seem to have done anything about it. We did. But, we added 200 more plates. So, well, okay. The, I, I, and I, we were about to add yeah. another 250. Well, why not? Add, why only 250, though? Why cap it? Because when we do an open system, the open system doesn't work. You've had how and many? Virtually now that's what we have with Uber here is an open system. Last time you added 250 plates, how many drivers showed up wanting to drive? Oh, about five, 600. And was it contingent so upon... You can't flood the, the market either. Why not? What would what would be the effect of flooding the market? Nobody would make any money. Who, who is so? Does the transportation uh, infrastructure exist to move Calgarians from place to place, or does it exi- exist to create business for uh, the the people who who uh, conduct the companies? Say that again. Does the transportation infrastructure in Calgary exist to move Calgarians from place to place, or does it exist to profit the people who run the companies? It's to move people place to place. Then why limit it at all? Well, one of the reasons was the cost of the license plates. Uh, which is set by whom? Which is set by us. And then it's, and then it's added to on top of that. Right. So it seems to me then that there's a lot of price controls in place at city council that act to frustrate uh, commuters in Calgary. I don't agree with that. Why not? Because I think there's ample out there, other than the odd time at Stampede and the odd time at Christmas, where the system is working fine. All right. So when you say you're, you're not a fan of Uber, you would uh, prefer not to have Uber in Calgary at all? I would. But I guess you realize that the direction we're going, it's probably going to mean some kind of regulated system that allows ride-sharing, right? Yes. What is your primary opposition to Uber? Well, we've gone from a regulated industry to it's anybody's game. And which one benefits Calgarians more? A regulated industry, because you're not being gouged. You're not being gouged? How much is a... um, See, this is where I have have trouble, because if I ask you how much is a ride from City Hall to this radio station here, you won't be able to tell me definitively what the price is. It's your radio station. It wouldn't be very much. 
Okay, but you still wouldn't be able to tell me definitively what the price is because it'll vary from trip to trip depending on things like red lights and the route that the yeah, driver takes. It won't vary by hundreds of dollars. Uh, no, it won't vary by hundreds of dollars. But it might vary by two or three dollars. But what, but hang on a second. Shouldn't the is this a commodity that should fluctuate from time to time, or is this a product that if City Hall is, has bylaws enacted that should co- have cost consistency? We do have cost consistency. We don't. As a matter have... of fact, when whenever they want a rate increase, they come to council, and council either agrees to it or disagrees to the rate increases. Right, but, but I don't so, see that coming from uh, Uber. You understand what I'm saying, though, that if you hail a cab at City Hall right now and you take it to this radio station every day for five days, you won't pay the same price all five days. You'll pay a different price each time. I know, but, I mean, it's like I said, it'd be within 50 cents to a dollar of each other. Well, maybe it's so. It's not going to be a couple of hundred dollars difference. Well, maybe so, but that's because of the shortness of the route. It might be within 5 to $10 of each other if you're taking that airport to Woodland. I know the time. amount of times I've taken a ride from City Hall to my house. The average cost has been about $20. The high cost has been $24. You have an average cost as opposed to a consistent cost, the same cost every time. The consistent cost also holds up depending on traffic as well. Sure. Okay. Did you, by chance, uh, take an Uber ride for the the brief time it was operating here? No, neither will I. Oh, you refused to? I refused to. Okay. Well, all right. I mean, I, di- I didn't either, but uh, those who did, and I know the, the Calgary Herald uh, did an experiment where they had reporters take taxis, reporters take Uber uh, cabs or cars and, and compare the results. And in most cases, U- Uber was uh, arrived quicker and was a cheaper ride. Does that not compel you in any way? No. Why not? Because I know what my basic cost is to where I want to go. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, with, with Uber, you agree to the rate before the ride. That's, that's all agreed to ahead of time, right? As long as the dollar figure is, is agreed to, that's fine. But that doesn't work with taxes. We don't agree to dollar figures before we get into a cab. No, but we know that it's a regulated industry. It's a regulated, it's a rate. And we know that... No, but, we, the, the, but you know the rate. Yeah. It, it just seems as though you have a double standard here, that as long as the taxi lets you know the rate, that's fine. But, but if Uber lets you know the rate, that's not fine. And the rate is posted. Well the, the rate, well, the rate is in your face on, on the app. You, you, don't, you can't get a ride without agreeing to the rate. I just, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it just seems we've got well, double standards. Okay, in, in fairness to the counselor, Rob, he didn't use the Uber service. He'd prefer not to. So he wouldn't know from, from firsthand experience that you have to agree to the rate. The price of the ride is stipulated prior to engaging it. Well, here's what I want to know. Why then, counselor, shouldn't it be written into a bylaw that somebody can hail a cab in the city of Calgary and negotiate the final end price for the trip without having the meter run? That's a good point. Thank you. Thanks for your time today, sir. Okay, thank you. All right, that's uh, Councillor Ray Jones. He is the councillor for Ward 5. It does seem like there's a double standard in place there, that you do negotiate the end price of an Uber trip before you even engage it, whereas with a taxi you get in and you just you just hope you get the lowest price because it's the most efficient route. You pay the Yeah, you pay the rate. And if you uh, start in the southeast and you uh, take a long trip around to the northwest and you drop off or pick up some people along the way, you're going to have a very expensive ride. Um, but I do feel, and, and I said it yesterday, I mean, I think th- this is going to be something that Uber opponents are just going to keep coming back to. Well, yeah, you want Uber? Fine. You want to pay $1,100 to get home? Well, good luck with that. It, it becomes, uh, you know, a point that critics can...
can throw out in, in this debate. I, I don't think it's necessarily a relevant point myself, but uh, you, you heard him mention it many times. All right. You let up the phone lines, 974-8255. We're going to take a short break right here. We'll get to as many of your phone calls as we can after this break, and, and we will probably have to uh, hold some calls over until after 12 o'clock this morning. We'll bring back, uh, I guess this afternoon, we'll bring back some open phone time for you then. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. I still didn't get from that. I, I think he did say at one point maybe he would want a bylaw to limit Uber's surge pricing to four or five times the rate, or maybe he just feels that's when it becomes gouging. I, I don't like the use of that word. I, I think that's unfortunate because it just becomes code for, I, I don't want to pay that. Going back to your jars of snow in the Herald today, I don't think that there should this should ever happen. Where I I go to Breckenridge Snow Jar Industries is that what it's called by the way? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, BSJI and I say uh, Rob, I want a jar of snow. What's the price right now? And you say a hundred dollars. Perfect. I'll pay a hundred dollars. And then in comes Ray Jones and says, No, he will only pay fifty. We had a deal, you and me. It was a perfect economic bargain. I thought I was getting a good deal on something I want, and you thought you were getting a good deal on something you want to sell, and along comes City Hall and says, here's how this is going to go, fellas, and that's the heart of this. Well, here's the thing. If, if gouging is illegal, shouldn't it be illegal to sell jars of snow for $100? It should be, because, uh, you know, by any definition that we're throwing around here, that, that sounds like gouging. That's a completely unreasonable price. And I can get the jar for what, like a dollar, fifty cents. I guess if I buy bulk, yeah, that's an insane markup. Cost me nothing to take that snow off my lawn and put it in a jar. That's gouging. But if I was standing on the the sidewalk selling these jars, would anybody call bylaw officials? Would anybody call the authorities? I think people would just laugh and and move <laughs> on. All right, let's get to some phone calls here. Nine seven four eight two five five. Hi, Darren. Go ahead. Hey guys, what a what an interesting conversation. I I got to applaud you guys. You guys held his feet to the fire as long as you could, but he wouldn't scream ouch. I just look at this. It's an open free market. Did the guy get? And I'm sorry, Rob. Did the guy get gouged in Edmonton? Probably, but like you guys are saying, he knew the rate going in. And and for for Ray Jones to say, I've taken a taxi and never had a problem. Try taking a taxi from a Flames game or from somewhere else downtown after a big event. They are non-existent. You've got people fighting for cabs. Our our city is lacking on transportation yeah. transportation infrastructure with with regards to taxi cabs. Uber is the solution. And to his point, we survived before Uber. Hey guys, you know what? We survived before the internet. I don't know why we need that internet thing because <laughs> man, we survived long before that. Let's let's get the horse and buggy back. <laughs> like, I just don't know how Ray Jones actually got elected with that mindset. What a narrow-minded mindset, and it was disappointing. You guys were frustrating me. I was listening to you guys, and it was getting more and more frustrating as it went along. All right. Hey, Darren, th- thanks for the call. I really appreciate the phone yeah, call. Yeah, I had a, you know, we don't have to revisit it at all, but, I, you know, last year at our Christmas party, tried to get a cab after that. That didn't uh, that didn't go so well. So, yeah, okay, so Ray Jones, he's has a pretty pretty good most of the time when he wants to get a cab. And I suppose if we went out right now to try to find a cab, we'd probably find one pretty quick. Yeah, I won't go downtown anymore to go out. Like I used to love going to the pub. I used to love you know rubbing uh, a patch on the bar at the Ship and Anchor with my shirt sleeves and have too much to drink, take a taxi home. I just can't reliably get a cab anymore, so I don't do it anymore. I'm not going to drive downtown and try and drive home after I've had exactly. too many. So uh, I just I refuse to do it. What kind of phone do you have? 
Got myself uh, an Android here, Samsung. Okay, I have an iPhone. This is a new iPhone. Did I get gouged? These two products do the same thing, just about. Did I get gouged because mine cost a bit more than yours? Yeah, probably. Hey, Eric, thanks for the call. Yeah, you know what? It's just amazing to me listening to that, uh, Ray Jones, because at the end of the day, I mean, this goes to the heart of, of, of everything. I mean, can you imagine if we had rent controls? And, and you've talked about that on your show. I mean, sure. essentially, that's what he's talking about. Let's, let's have an artificially high price. And, and to his point that we didn't have Uber before and everything was fine, well, the reality is if everything was fine, there'd be no demand for Uber with there. No, exactly. So there you have it. It mm-hmm. is supply and demand. There's a problem with the current supply. There's a demand for more access to taxis or transportation. And really, who wants a drunk person on the road anyway? Yeah, you I know, don't. You know what you just did, Eric? That's like when you catch that uh, football and then you just go, keep going right into the locker room. Game-winning touchdown phone call right there. Good job. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Shades of Pee Wee Smith. Remember that? Remember that? Anybody? Oh, yeah. Anybody? Anybody? Uh, let's see if we can squeeze a few more in here. Hi there, Bruce. How are you? Hey, you know, interesting discussion. I'm not sure if I'm going to stir the pot a little bit here. You know, I used Uber in Toronto. Really impressed with the service. Really liked it. They did some things that were really slick, mm-hmm. especially the billing. Um, but, you know, I do have an ethical problem with what they did in New Year's Eve. Is that here we are trying to get drunk drivers off the road. And, you know, next New Year's Eve, how many people are actually going to make the decision to say, you know what? Maybe I am going to drive my car. So, you know, I think there are certain events where the company needs to have discipline for itself and show it's a good citizen by not taking advantage. But it's of a it's a trade off. And look, the, these drivers are earning money. It's it's meant to be a financial incentive for a driver who's at home to get off the couch and get on the road because there's well, a lot of people who want rides. That's the whole point. So it becomes a trade off. Is it it worth having customers pay a bit more if it means more drivers on the road? Yeah, well, sure. A bit more is two or three times, not eight times. Right, but but it's not not arbitrary. It's not as though someone in a boardroom somewhere decides that that's what it's going to be. It's built in in as an algorithm. Well, what I'm saying is they shouldn't be taking advantage of people on New Year's Eve when they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah, Bruce, I, I think you're bang on, actually. I think that as a good corporate citizen, particularly one that's trying to curry public support, I think that Uber should have decided that it's going to somehow uh, uh, compensate. If they if they insist on using a pricing mechanism to, uh, uh, you know, you know, get more people out on the road, use the surge pricing, that they should have somehow subsidized it so that they could avoid any negative PR and probably be the white knight. Uh, you know, the well, white they did. The white they hat. refunded the guy half. Half the fare. I think that they could have gone about it from a corporate perspective better, from a, from a corporate citizenship perspective a little bit better. However, having said that, um, there's no way that I would take that surge pricing mechanism off uh, of what Uber does because it is a very natural price incentive to increase and stimulate the supply. I understand that. But at the same time, you know, there are people who, if you have been drinking and driving, who will come pick you up. So one day of the year... Everyone should be working towards the same goal, and that is not having, you know, it's still a travesty. I've been driving for 35 years, and you know what? People are not taking drinking and driving seriously. It's the same as it was 35 years ago. You know, it's a different topic, but Uber should be using this for advancing a cause as opposed to all this negative publicity. So I've deleted my Uber account. 
We'll never use them. My company will never use them. Okay. Thanks for the call, Bruce. Really, really appreciate it. I think that, the, that to Bruce's final point, the city should look at Uber as a solution to drinking and driving in the city. I think they should. I mean, something else to keep in mind, the reason why the surge rate in Edmonton got so high was because there was such demand. So where are all these other people with these, these horror stories? Um, I, I don't see them. This guy chose to take pretty much as long a trip as you can imagine, knowing the rate going in dropping off friends along the way. Why not just make plans? And look, this Uber ride's going to cost a, a lot of money. The rate's at like almost 9% or nine times the rate. How about we just, your place is the first stop. Why don't we all just crash there? Right? Or, you know, so I, he decided this. He made a, a very conscious decision to take a very expensive ride. Now, listen, we're going to break here for the 1030 News. We'll talk more about this later on. We're going to talk about the biggest loser and why it's seen as, as reckless and maybe even dangerous television. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Right, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. After 11 o'clock, Aaron Hutchins from McLean's Magazine will join us. Uh, his cover story that suggests we're becoming a, a nation of winter wusses. Can't take winter like we used to. Is that a Hinterland Who's Who episode, by the way? The Winter Wuss can be found on the Canadian uh, Shield. It's like my uh, smart aleck daughter. She's got this uh, accent she does when she wants to mock people. She's like, Back in my day. <laughs> we should get she, her on. We <laughs> can we get audio of that that we could play? <laughs> oh, I bet we could. <laughs> Anyways, we'll do that after 11 o'clock. Hey, by the way, last night, you know, we're now we're... Uh, Back in January, out of the holiday season, uh, the new TV shows are, are resuming. I think American Idol starts its final season this week. Um, the Biggest Loser, its 17th season, kicked off last night on NBC. And I guess people, I think, probably know the premise of the show. They haven't seen it. Yeah. It's basically um, a slate of, I don't know, 15, 16 severely overweight people. And they are just going to go through weeks of hell. Uh, extreme diet, extreme exercise, one will be left standing, and we'll see a, a, a dramatic change. You won't even recognize this person when all is said and done. That's true. That's what the finish looks like. But wait a second. Is this a responsible way to, to encourage people to lose weight and get in shape? How, how many days is it shot over? Do we know that? I'm not sure. I, and I don't think people watching get a... A realistic sense of how long these contestants are there, right. how much they're working out per day, how little they actually eat on a daily basis. It's kind of like Survivor, right? Like Survivor takes place over a period of a couple of weeks at the most, but it runs for months. So people, you know, I think in the beginning people were like, wow, how long were they on that island for? It's like they're voting somebody off every day. Okay. That's <laughs> not a big deal. So this show's got its critics and it includes people who have been on this show. Uh, in the past, but, but uh, joining us on the program, someone we've uh, spoken to many times, Dr. Yanni Friedhoff, assistant professor at the University of Ottawa, author of The Diet Fix, founder of the Bariatric Medical Institute, and also blogs at weightymatters.ca. Yanni, great to have you back with us. Welcome to the nice show. Nice to be here. Thank you. Um, you're, you're not a fan of The Biggest Loser. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm definitely not a fan. Is it s surprising? I mean, obviously it's disappointing, but what do you make of the fact that it's it's still going? Well, listen, it's, it's spectacular, like literally spectacular. It's a spectacle. It's the modern day equivalent of the, the Roman gladiators. We are watching people suffer for our own entertainment. And that in and of itself to me is problematic. You know, these people really are 
miserable for the time that they're on this ranch. They exercise them until they literally throw up. There's injuries every single season. They do these ridiculous challenges where they, you know, provide them with tempting foods, and then they create this fake drama of whether they're going to give in and have it or not. And ultimately what it does um, is it teaches people simultaneously that if you want it bad enough, you can make it happen, but that doing it requires superhuman effort that absolutely nobody sustains, including the people from The Biggest Loser, where the folks who have completed the show, and I've interviewed a, a number of former contestants, all tell me the same thing. The vast majority of people on the show do regain all of their weight over time because they can't sustain the ridiculous lifestyles that the show is teaching them. Now, Rob, what were we talking about yesterday? We we're talking about these exercise machine commercials where, you know, they get this guy who was ripped and in just Adonis form to begin with to tell you that it's just 10 minutes a day. By the way, I haven't had a glass of water in 48 hours. Look at how my skin is wrapped around my six pack abs. But they do this thing about how like 10 minutes a day. And then if you really sort of peel back the layers, you'll figure out that if you want to look like that, you almost have to be pro uh, professionally working out on that machine. The, the problem I have with these shows, doctor, is that it's their job to be on. Like, this isn't something that, that mortal humans actually have the time to do is to try and get on a weight loss regime like that because we gotta we got to work eight hours a day, and then there's the family to tend to. It's not like we're on a, a three-week holiday being paid to work out. And even if we were, quite honestly, the types of interactions and, and, uh, and interventions that the show promotes aren't ones that even with a world of free time people would want to live with for the rest of your lives. Whatever you do to lose the weight, if you stop doing that thing, the weight comes back. And so undertaking a Biggest Loser style approach will likely lead to weight gain, not just because it is impossible to sustain the effort, but actual science that has been done on the contestants who participate in The Biggest Loser shows that the biggest loser destroys their metabolism. So that style of weight loss has a greater negative impact on metabolic rate than would bariatric surgery. And that's what's been shown in the medical literature. These people are being provided with not only a non-sustainable intervention, but a dangerous one. Well, and, and you know, that's the thing. And, and you've got one of the winners of this show who's violating a non-disclosure agreement to speak out against it, risking uh, legal action. But she says, look, uh, it was hell. Uh, I, I've regained a lot of the weight. Most of the people on this show have regained the weight. That's why NBC would never host a reunion show, because that, that's the reality for these contestants. That's right. And, you know, having spoken again with a number of former contestants, including other season's winners, um, what they tell me is not only do the majority gain it back, but of those who don't gain it back, there's a large percentage of them who undergo bariatric surgery. I have no proof of this, but this is what this person, these people were telling me on the interviews that I did with them. Uh, or they've now created incomes based on sustaining their losses. You know, I, I run a medical weight management program here in Ottawa. If I could tell people, listen, if you can keep the weight you lose here off, you can have a six-figure income and get to travel places and meet celebrities, I think that we'd have a higher number of people who succeed long-term. It's a very artificial motivation that doesn't exist. And even with that motivation, the majority of Biggest Loser contestants gain their weight back. Um, 
here's here's some of the issues that I have with this, Doctor. These are just my perceptions. So I'd, I'd love to get your comment on it. First of all, I don't believe that you see all of the exercise that goes into the dramatic weight loss. I only think you get to see a portion of it. And I think that that show does very, very little to address the mental health uh, problems that people go into the show with and that uh, they leave the show having created by being a part of it. Yeah, I mean, especially the latter point of yours, it's really pertinent. That show is a horror show. I mean, it teaches viewers week in, week out, and of course the contestants too, that scales do more than measure the gravitational pull of the earth. That show teaches people that scales measure happiness, that scales measure success, that scales measure health. Um, scales don't do those things. I mean, scales do measure gravity. All the other stuff we need to be able to measure ourselves. And, you know, I cannot imagine how incredibly demoralizing it must be for someone who lost weight in front of an audience of 10 million people to regain their weight over time afterwards, which the majority of contestants do. That in and of itself is cruel and unusual punishment, which is why I'm always so shocked that there are doctors willing to get involved with the show because doctors' jobs in part are to do no harm, and I think that show is definitely doing harm. Well, and you, and you just see it. And, and I mean, the way the show portrays it, it's almost like heroic. These people are fighting through adversity. But w when you see people vomiting in the gym, uh, working out to the point of exhaustion, it, it, it does seem as though this, this seems dangerous. And people are passing out and you get doctors on standby. That, that shouldn't be happening. No, it really shouldn't be happening. And the fact of the matter, too, is, is that real life, and including on the show, the majority of the weight that's being lost isn't from the exercise, yet the show is teaching the viewers that exercise is the ticket to the weight loss express. Now, it's true that on a show like that, or if in real life you exercise six to eight hours a day, you would, in fact, create a significant loss consequent just to the exercise, but still, even on that show, the majority of losses are due to extreme dietary restrictions. And again, I use the word extreme on purpose. People don't live with extreme dietary restriction forever. Food's a comfort. It's a celebration. It's part of the fabric of our culture. And when people try to take that away, even in the name of weight loss, it's a short-term project, not a long-term one. So, Doctor, is the problem with the show the premise or the process? It's both. Okay. You know, so the premise that you know you need to, if you've got weight to lose, you need to suffer in perpetuity because that is what life is all about. Life is about a low number on a scale. That premise is incredibly and horribly flawed. And then as far as the process goes, I mean, the process is horribly flawed too. And again, this isn't just me saying so because I personally don't subscribe to the idea or the, the, the way they go about weight loss. But in fact, from scientific studies on contestants showing that this show does tremendous metabolic damage to the contestants, presumably consequent to the process. Well, you know, and one of the, I forget who it was. There was the article uh, that, that you were quoted in. Someone else is quoting as saying, you know, it's a miracle someone hasn't died. I mean, is, is that what it's going to take? Uh, something awful happening to one of these contestants to make everybody take a step back and saying, you know, well, what are so we I all thought, a party to here? I, I thought maybe we would have seen that last year. So last year, the show, in its logical and inevitable conclusion, had somebody on it who at least uh, superficially appeared to have gotten into a realm of weight as far as lightness that was dangerous. I mean, this was a person, I'm not sure if she had an eating disorder as a consequence, but certainly she lost sufficient weight uh, to, the, to the point where it worried 
the, the viewing audience. And it there was a lot so of cry yeah. with last year's winner. And I thought maybe this would be it. People would realize how insane this show was. But um, I don't think we've reached that. And yes, I, I do think that a, a serious uh, medical problem could derail the show. But I also suspect that the show will be very skilled at ensuring that particular uh, episode or or uh, event is not, in fact, aired. You know, this is about money. This is about ratings. This is not about ethics. This is not about health. This is not about the betterment of humankind or even the individuals there. This is about uh, NBC trying to make money off of a massive, massive show that not only has the show and the advertisers on the show, but so many tie-ins and merchandise and uh, ranches. This is a juggernaut. And unfortunately, as we all know, um, money has a bad way of um, clouding good decisions. Uh, for people who just tuned in, we're discussing the TV program called The Biggest Loser, Not the NFL. Uh, but, Doctor, I do want to take it there because I am one of these people who believes that uh, uh, if you're an individual, uh, you should be free to choose to enter, uh, you know, face punching contests or, or uh, helmeted head uh, butting contests like football games. Uh, but the compensation is there. So, I mean, it, wh- what is this saying about us as as viewers that we're okay watching people do tremendous damage to themselves in the entertainment of, our, of, of us, and, or is it deeper than that? Well, I think it speaks to, again, the societal view of obesity as a whole. You know, so it, it cultivates the notion that obesity is a disease of lazy gluttons, which it is not. Obesity is a complex chronic condition with a lot of issues related to it. Um, people... Uh, you know, we watch our society gain weight year after year after year. People aren't going to bed deciding to do this. The world is pushing us in that direction. But, you know, uh, ultimately with this show, um, we are continuing a narrative that in and of itself, uh, it fuels itself, right? So seeing this show suggests that this is what's required. But since I guess nobody can possibly do this in real life, people want to watch to see it happen. And we've also elevated weight loss as the be-all and end-all of, of health or of social status or of happiness. Um, when that belief exists, viewers will continue to watch. And really, I don't see there being any future shortage predicted of viewers for shows like The Biggest Loser. It's what people want to see. Well, again, that that whole premise, that whole premise that these people are there because they've screwed up in life, and now they all need to be whipped back into shape, uh, and they're going to be yelled at, they're going to be insulted if if they're not seemingly working hard enough. It means they're not committed. They don't want it bad enough. And, and those who just don't live up to those standards are going to be shamed and, and banished. It, it all surrounds that, that premise, doesn't it? Yeah, and that premise is what fuels the incredible amount of bias in society versus people with weight, including children. So the number one source of bullying in schools is weight. It's weight-related bullying. I mean, this is a really toxic thing that the show, and not just the show, of course, but the show's done a, a great amount of damage as far as perpetuating the notion that if you just want it badly enough, you can do it, and if you don't do it, you're simply lazy, and if you do have weight to lose, you were a glutton to begin with. I mean, that is what the show teaches. Unfortunately, that translates to children as well, and there was a horrific... I think we might have even talked about it season a few years ago of The Biggest Loser where they actually had children involved. Um, 
Um, I, I could not have been more horrified at the time. I remember I spent many nights angrily live tweeting the show. I mean, it really was a, a, an awful thing. But, you know, this uh, idea that attitudes around obesity aren't dangerous, they are. They, they definitely are, especially to our kids. Indeed. Well, uh, more at uh, weightymatters.ca, also the book, The Diet Fix. Dr. Friedhoff, thanks so much for joining us here. Appreciate Thank this. You. Take care. Uh, Dr. Yanni Friedhoff, also assistant professor, University of Ottawa, founder of the Bariatric Medical Institute, which is a non-surgical facility. But as he said, I mean, a lot of people do opt for that. And that, that's a pretty surprising finding that he talked about, where people who just simply go through bariatric uh, surgery have higher metabolism than people who do this, you know, this crash course, this this biggest loser. So who's more likely to gain that weight back tends to be the people who, who do this, who go through this experience. So that maybe more than anything should tell us this isn't the route for people to go. Yeah. This is a sideshow, right? Are we okay with calling it a sideshow? I mean, these are people who have a condition that they'd rather not have, presumably. And we're just we're exploiting that condition for the entertainment and the profit of others. Well, That's what a sideshow is. People want to be inspired. So you see at the beginning of the year and the person, I'm, I, I just I hate how I look. I, I just, you know, and the, the tears flow. And then you see that person triumphantly at the end of the season. Look at me. Look at what I accomplished. I feel great. I look great. People are inspired by that. But you don't see the follow up. The show is not honest in the sense that we're going to follow up with these people three years later. Oh, look, gee, gosh, that person gained all that weight back. Shucks. That's that's too bad. You won the show, and people are just left with the impression that you live happily ever after.